First Samuel chapter 29 this evening. Bad to worse, that's the title and perhaps the dominant thought. Verse 1, we'll get right to it. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphex, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Well, if you haven't been following, Achish is the Philistine king that has become friends with David. At least he thinks he's friends with David. So here is David lining up, him and his 600 men, with the enemy. Ready for battle on the wrong side. Uh, you, you've got to say, well, what is David doing? Uh, many commentators are pretty hard on David. They uh, treat him as though he doesn't belong where he is. Uh, was this a planned suicide mission on David's part? I don't think that was it. What about David's men? What were they thinking? Did they feel like they were defectors, traitors against their own people? I think the answer is a very simple one. Uh, they knew they would be in perfect position to attack the enemy from the back. And uh, the Philistine lords, they saw it. Why can't the commentators see it? Uh, but the Philistine lords, they're, they're going to pick it out. Achish, he's, he's just you know naive with the whole thing with David. But while he attacks from the rear, Saul will attack from the front. It would be a, a perfect storm for victory. It's not going to work that way. This is a big gathering, incidentally. This is not uh, just a, a small battle about to take place. This is a decisive war. Verse 3, then the princes of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And so this day I have found no fault in him. He defected to me. Yuck, 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 yuck. Uh, incidentally, there's a time stamp here. These days, these years. Remember, this whole drama with Saul just went on and on, and, but it's about to end. Uh, the Philistines, uh, they typically refer to the Jews as Hebrews. It goes all the way back to the days of Abraham. And then after Isaac was, uh, not Isaac, Jacob was renamed uh, Israel. In time, they became known as the children of Israel and then Israel since Egypt. Uh, after the fall of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, they will then pick up the name Jew, Judah, Jew. Uh, that's the connection there. But uh, Achish, of course, is reasoning. He can't go back to his people. He's defected to me. He's run raids on his own people. They'll never take him back. But it was all an illusion. David had lied to him. <laughs> well, you know, it was ambiguous. Yeah, where have you been, David? We're raiding to the south. And uh, Achish thought it was uh, the Jewish people. Verse 4. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him, and do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? 
Now, there were five Philistine lords. Achish, the king of Gath, he was one of them. Ekron, Ashkelon. Uh, we, you don't need to really go over that unless you want to. But anyway, there were five, five uh, different ones. And, and so Achish is a equal amongst his peers here. But, of course, the other four is like, are you crazy? <laughs> Achish. Everyone but Achish knew what could happen here. Well, he was a little blinded because, you know, he, he liked David. He was got too close to David as an enemy, and uh, he couldn't see the threat any longer. Uh, common sense these men had, in spite of having the wrong God, they still had common sense. And, uh, however, they lacked spiritual sense, which is most important. And it is true, or I say it this way, I believe many believers can, many unbelievers... Many unbelievers can see godliness in someone faster than many Christians can see leaven. And here we have the unbelievers. They can see the problem. They know David can, you know, uh, turn back to Saul by taking off the heads of these kings. And he's he's referencing Goliath. David took the head of Goliath. And so that's in the language. Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 8, to back up my statement about many unbelievers can see godliness in someone faster than believers can see leaven. Luke, 8, uh, Luke 16, 8, Jesus in his parable says, So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Christ is is a subtle rebuke there. Because you have the right God does not mean you have the right to stop thinking. The world, they continue to think. And how much better it would be for Christians to think matters through. That's the point. He continues at the bottom of verse 4, if not with the heads of these men, and again, that's an allusion to David taking the head of Goliath, verse 5, is this not David? of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands, of Philistines. That's who it was directed towards. The Philistines weren't savages. I mean, they were pagans. Um, I'm not trying to lessen their need to be judged at this time in history. But if they were savages, they just would have killed dead. You know, that would have been that. In verse 5, uh, where he mentions this, uh, the dances and the singing, uh, David's victories were legendary. Uh, he didn't just kill Goliath. He had other victories against the Philistines and other peoples, and then word got around. And so here they say, good night, Achish. <laughs> what are you thinking? And you're going to make him tail end Charlie. He's going to be in our rear. The perfect position to make things bad for us. Verse 6, then Achish called David and said to him, Surely, as Yahweh lives, you have been upright, and your going out and coming in with me in the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have found, not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. <laughs> so he's like, I'm sorry. This is, you know I want you here with us. You're such a great guy. And again, he's... He's uh, very naive. Well, he says, surely Yahweh lives. He's being polite. He's not a believer. He's not a convert, if he were. 
He wouldn't be attacking Israel. Uh, But he is honoring David's God because it's a polite thing to do. All All the pagans did it. They had no problem with it. The Jews, of course, a righteous Jew would never do that. A Christian would not honor a false god. Uh, just, but someone with uh, the wrong kind of faith would. In fact, some of the Jews were known to do this so much that the prophets called them out. Zephaniah chapter 1. Those who worship the host of heavens... On the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by Yahweh, but also by Milcom. They're into polytheism. They're into acknowledging other forces in the universe as being divine, equal with Yahweh. Maybe not as equal. Well, maybe not equal, but, you know, a lesser God to some. It's all lies from hell. It's all wrong. And so this, you know, surely Yahweh lives. Of course, Rome, in the days of the apostles, Rome didn't mind, care whatever God you believed in, long as you also acknowledge Caesar as God. And, of course, the Jews wouldn't do that. But the Jews made up for it, and the Romans didn't want to keep making a problem with the Jews. They kind of turned the other way. But with the Christians, when they found out, well, you know, the Christians really are not part of Judaism, then they turned up the pressure on the Christians. And the persecutions then started... Uh, Their thinking was, if you're not showing deference to the gods, we're all going to suffer. Because the gods may not send rain or whatever, you know, we need to, you know, they may not keep the locusts away. And you're causing us misery because of your religion. They have no proof for any of this. You could easily refute it. Well, then how come there are other places where there are no Christians and they have problems? (laughs) Well, they didn't appease the gods. And no winning that argument is dumb. Well, uh, Achish, you don't know the real David. Verse 7, therefore return now, Achish speaking to David, and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Achish is a nice man as men go. Um, As the witch of Endor was a nice person as people go. But what does it profit a person who gain the whole world? Lose your soul. Verse 8. So David said to Achish, but what have I done? (laughs) I'll pause there. Remember, David had his acting debut when he acted crazy in the tent. So he's gotten good at this. He's got that whole artistic thing going on. He plays the harp with his hands. So uh, he can do this. And so, but what have I done? <laughs> so you kidding me? <laughs> it was a straight face. I'd love to see David's, you know, men standing next to him like, brother. And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you? Yeah, what have you found? That I may go out and fight against the enemies of my Lord. How ambiguous. If he had said, well, who are your enemies? Write it down on a piece of paper. (laughs) Who are your enemies, David? And David would not have written Israel. (laughs) He would have written Philistines, if he were honest. Anyway, with these uh, developed acting skills. He, of course, stays in favor with Achish, and uh, his intentions are to side with God's people. He is being intentionally misleading, flying beneath the radar all all that time. Verse 9, then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us for battle. 
Uh, Achish doesn't want to burn his bridges. He wants to keep a good relationship with David. David knows that these guys are right. He would never, if David were in command and the Philistine 600 men from them lined up with the Jews, there's no way he'd let that happen. Well, not at this time in history. Because later he is going to put some people around him that are not Jews that have, um, are going to be very close to him, carrying swords. Verse 10. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, beat it. Uh, depart. So, David, I, I would like to do a Bible translation. It would be a little bit more, you know. Well, anyway. <clears throat> so, David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Jezreel, where the, battle, the valley of Megiddo and all that area, northern Israel, very beautiful, very flat, ideal for chariot warfare, tank warfare. I mean, it's, it's, um, it is a perfect battlefield. What is happening here with Achish sending David home is God is disentangling David. From the entanglement that David has gotten himself into, and really is not maybe as aware of it as he, he thinks he, he is, this disentanglement will distance David from the scene of Saul's death. David will be nowhere near. Saul's, no one can say David killed Saul to get to that throne. Uh, he will be blameless. Uh, but things are going from going to go from bad here, and David, you have to go back to Ziklag, to worse. Now, I'm always, you know, I wish they would tell us how these guys traveled. Were some of them on horses? Uh, I, I, the way it reads, and we'll come to this in this next chapter, is that m most of them were walking, at least most of them, if not all of them, because they're going to cover 55 miles now in three days which is, you know, again, Israel only has uphill. There's no downhill. And so it's going to be quite a trek. But verse 1 now, 1 Samuel 30. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag, that's David's base camp, on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire. It could get a little redundant there, I think, right? You didn't burn it with water. But anyway, uh, you can burn it with other things. I digress. Uh, as I mentioned, Aphex, where they lined up for pass and review of troops to Ziklag, at least 55 miles, and that's as the crow flies. Why did it take three days? Again, apparently not riding horses. Verse 10 and 17 suggests this when the men are too weary to go further in, uh, to, to uh, get back their loved ones. And then later, uh, 400 of the Amalekites escape on camels. Well, if they had horses, they could have just, you know, trotted after them and likely or at least possibly. Anyway, you might not be bothered by those things, but when I read, I want everything to fit. I don't want anything to be magical. I, I want it all to be the way it was. <clears throat> and accepting the miracles, of course. And so, to me, it helps understand because 
I believe when God said man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he meant that this is our book for life. That we need food to survive and we need God's word to survive. And he didn't say man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and some other stuff guys make up. I think that omission is profound. And I think that those Christians who don't like that are very offended that that's in the Bible, but they could, can't come out and say it. Um, more on that later. Verse, uh, we're still at verse 1. And the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire. So while David was lining up with the Philistines, even though he had this great plan, uh, it, it cost them regardless the Amalekites are taking revenge, more than likely, not only stuff, but David had been, you know, launching raids against their people, and, and they're just coming back. And David's going to sort of send a message to them, you don't mess with me, when he finally gets, gets his sword on them. But verse 2, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. Well, had Saul obeyed, the commandment through Samuel from God to destroy the Amalekites, we wouldn't have this mess, more than likely. But there was much to be thankful for. All right, Ziklag is burned to the ground. It's typical in those days. But there was no blood and no bodies. The people were alive. Because there were only women and children here. And so the violence was unnecessary on the side of the Amalekites. Nobody stood up to resist them, at least not enough for them to kill them. And so they just captured them to enslave them. Verse 3, I, I don't know. I don't want slaves, but I would like servants. I mean, who wouldn't? You wouldn't have to mow, empty the dishwasher, deal with maggots in the trash can in the summer. I mean, it's just a lot of benefits to having servants. Um, we call them employees now. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm simplifying it, of course. There's, life's tough for all of us. Verse 3, so it's tougher for some than others, in case you're thinking. Verse 3, so David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. And David, verse 4, then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. You want to say, save some of that energy for the fight. <laughs> Don't use up your fight in the gym. Uh, it's, uh, it's horrible. They, they just, you know, here are these 600 men. This had to be loud. Uh, imagine if you're up on a hill about a mile away with binoculars and you can see this happening. And Look at this. Uh, it's a very hor horrific experience. Things went from bad to worse, just like that. In the three days that they, it had taken them to come from Aphex, their families are gone. And verse 5, And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail. Oh, stop right there. Now, I'm in the fight now. I'm messing with Abigail. <laughs> and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Well, now, uh, I'm in it now. If I was dragging before, I know. Anyway, uh, this uh, dread that they have, we, we face perverted devils. 
I mean, they're all over the place, insisting that we conform. I don't know how I would handle that. If somebody came up to the church and said, you have to stop preaching that, I would be so ready to get in the flesh and say, look, boom. <laughs> I mean, shoes untied, clunk. I don't, you know, I just, I, I don't, I don't have an orthodox style with dealing with these people. You know how some people are very polished and they want to exchange ideas. I want to call his mama names and start doing really, you know, I'm just telling you, I don't have that. Well, our opinion is. So I say to myself, how would I handle this? And God just says, I'll take care of it. Don't you worry about it. If it happens, and I'm not telling you if it is or it is, but if it is, I'll take care of it. So I'm good with that. But still, I, I, I fret over it just a little bit. Um, I don't care for the orthodox style of debate when you're dealing with devils. I think a demon, a demonic person should be called demonic to their face. You've got to be ready to deal with them because <laughs> they're demonic after all. All right, you're not with me on this, but that's your fault. Uh, anyway... Uh, we face these perverted devils in our age, and they're facing these violent ones in theirs. Which would you rather? None. I don't. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to deal with any of this. Verse 6. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in Yahweh his God. Now it's starting to heat up for us as, as believers who say we live by the word of God. We take lessons from this scripture and we apply it to our lives. And that's why the Bible is relative to me. Because it has something to do with my life directly. And for those who don't believe it and claim Christ, that's their problem. But that, as for me and my house, it's the word of God. Discouragement can move from weakness to defeat to bitterness very quickly. Very fast. Discouragement is so powerful, it kept an entire nation out of their land. Numbers 13 and 14. It wouldn't let the Jews, God said, that's it, you're not going in. Only, you know, the only two that stood up to everybody, they wanted to kill them for doing it. And nothing's changed in all that time. Some people seem to enjoy discouragement and depression. They're so happy they're depressed. Boom. <laughs> It's true. I mean, you can sometimes just see it on their faces. They have no desire to break free. They've learned to embrace their depression or their discouragement. And they want to let you know they're depressed. And they want to let you know they're discouraged. And they wear it on their face. It's somber look. How do I escape that? I don't want to be that way. What if you're that way? How do you get out of this? So you have to believe the things that are in the word of God. Or chase your tail. And you don't even have one, so you're not going to catch it. It's like waiting for the cows to come home. I don't have any cows. That's a long wait. Philippians 1, Paul speaking of himself and applying it to his audience, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You've got to believe this. Everything is going somewhere and is going to Jesus Christ. He writes Timothy on death row, Paul on death row, for this reason I also suffer these things. I hate suffering. I mean, humidity makes me just, <laughs> just like, who thought of humidity? Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. 
He's, I love this. Paul is like, I suffer and I'm not ashamed. He says, I know for whom I have believed and am persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. That's courage. This, this man Saul was just extraordinary when it came to faith. There are others that are, Daniel, of course, and others. John writes this about Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We're not supposed to walk around somber. It's a contradiction to our faith. We're supposed to fight that. You might feel it on the inside, but you don't have to put up a placard. Faith is action based on knowledge. Faith is action based on, I know something. No, I know I, I really know it. I don't know about it. I have experienced it. Being born again is an experience. It's not a theory. If you have been born again, you have heard the voice of Christ. And nobody can take that from you. But if you want to trash it, you, you, you can, but uh, ill-advised. No matter what others do, faith is based on knowledge. And again, some think biblical faith has failed them. It's failed them because it hasn't given them what they wanted. Maybe they didn't get the job they wanted. Maybe their marriage is not as happy as they want it to be. So now they think they have a right to not trust the Bible because the Bible promises joy. Like Jesus said, in the world, you're going to have a lot of trouble. In the world, you will have much tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And that means it ain't going to last forever because he put those, that cherubim at the end of the garden to make sure Adam and Eve didn't eat of the wrong tree. And live forever in their sin. God has taken countermeasures to sin, and we just got to get through it. He says, so what are you telling me, Pastor? I got to get through life? Do I sound gentle? A little carried away? Over the top a little bit? Okay, I'll walk her back. Well, I think... <laughs> I can't. That's not me! <laughs> this is me. Your rifle got rust on it, you're going to jail. You're going to the brig. That's it. I, I applauded that kind of treatment. But I know civilians don't live that way. They, they, they want to see gentle and kind. And, and, and I do too when, it's, when I'm in trouble. But anyway. <laughs> so David was greatly distressed. Let's close in prayer. That's where the story ends. Of course it does not. And it's not supposed to end for us there either. We get distressed. We come under this horror. They wept until they had no more energy. It says here at verse 6, For the people spoke of stoning him. It got worse again. What do you mean? I lost my family. Now you're going to kill me? Still practiced in the best of churches. How vicious followers can be. The emotions have hijacked the ship. They wanted to kill Moses. Exodus 17, verse 4. So Moses cried to Yahweh, saying, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And so, of course, God helped them out of that mess. But this is a big part of what I'm talking about here. Now, David was greatly distressed for the first time in the Bible. We read of David being friendless. I mean, it's just nobody's with him now. He's always had somebody. Jonathan was out there somewhere, you know, in touch not too far. He's got nobody. Until now, he has um, not suffered alone, but he's suffering alone now. David strengthened himself in Yahweh his God. That was his response, as I read of Paul 
And John writing in first in John's Gospel one four, in him was the life, and the life was the light of men. And David has just turned the light on. He's taking countermeasures against this from bad to worse distress. Instead of diving into a fit of depression, he goes to God. And when we are at our wit's end, we have no right to go to our faith's end. Just because your wits have taken you as far as they can doesn't mean your faith needs to stop too. That continues going. This is what Paul, you know, the famous verse from Job. He slayed me, I will still trust in him. My faith is not going to stop. This is resolve. It's uh, not a New Year's resolution. This is resolve. This is the, this is, I'm drawing a line here, and by God's help, I'll not move away from it. Here, uh, Yahweh is called David's God. David strengthened himself in Yahweh his God. This, the historian, is purposely drawing a stark contrast between righteous David and evil Saul. Three times in a single event, Saul said to Samuel, your God, your God, your God. And I, well, this is crazy. You're a churchgoer. You've claimed to be, you know, a child of Israel. It's supposed to be your God too. You bring, when you bring an offering to the temple, Saul, who do you bring it to? It's our God. Why are you talking this you, your God, not our God? I kind of cringe when someone's been coming to the church for years and they still say, you all. When is it going to be us? When, when do you line up on the wall with us in the same uniform? Well, this book of Samuel has some final comparisons between righteous David and wicked Saul. Saul disregarded the law. He always moved around it, always found a way to excuse himself. He had a criminal mind when it came to God. How can I get around it and not get caught by men? David obeyed. Now, again, it's not saying David's perfect. But the contrasts are intentional by the Holy Spirit through the historian. Because Samuel didn't write this. Samuel's dead. He's not, you know, sending us this text from Sheol. <laughs> Saul inquired of a dead prophet. While David inquired of Yahweh himself. So David doesn't go, quick, bring the ephod here. I want to contact Samuel. He talks to Yahweh directly. Saul con consulted the medium, the witch at Endor, the world's counselor. While David consulted a man of God. He called the high priest and he said, bring me the ephod. We'll get to all of this. And Saul's message that he received was one of death. And David received a message of victory. And we're going to see that in the next few verses. These things are not little. They're not to be dismissed. They have everything to do with man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse 7, And David said to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Now the ephod is that pouch that the priest wore, and in, within it were the Urim and the Thunim that they discerned the will of God was a yes or a no. They're, you know, they figured, if, you know, this, we don't know exactly what it looked like. We can just <clears throat> theorize that, you know, <clears throat> two sides up of the same color meant yes. We want, you know, just we like lots. 
But anyway, it worked. It was very effective for David. And so he turns to Yahweh through Yahweh's appointed man. He's within the system of faith. He's not outside of it, as Saul would have done. Verse 8. So David inquired of Yahweh, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. It's quite profound. I don't know how he got all of that out of the ephod, but he got it. And I guess God says, you know, if I had let you know how they did this, you wouldn't be praying to me in the spirit. You'd be out trying to pull things out of a pouch to find direction. And I don't want you to do that. I want a personal relationship with you now. Because there's enough of the record in scripture for you to have faith. And so through the priest. Otherwise... So David asks for the ephod. David's not doing this. The priest is doing this. Otherwise, who needs the priest? God, you know, later we're going to read of King Uzziah, a good king who got too big for his britches and decided that he was going to be a priest too and offer incense on the altar. And God struck him with leprosy on the spot. The priests were ready to die, uh, repelling him from the temple. <clears throat> so that was a showdown that the Lord interfered with. Anyway, uh, to withdraw and to withhold God when you're under in distress or depressed, discouraged or defeated. Uh, it's to exclude God, to give up on praying. You, you, have, you, you can't. Not as a believer, you've got to push forward. I know you can get really close to this. You can get to the place where I'm just prayed out. I just prayed out. I still believe in the Lord. I still love God, but I just I can't ask for anymore. That's okay. God understands that. That's not excluding God and replacing him with self-sufficiency and a self-will. Um, that's what Saul did. We read about it in 1 Samuel 14. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. I don't want the word of God. I don't need the ephod answer. I can go without God. I got this. That's what Saul did. Then in the same chapter, in verse 37, 1 Samuel 14, we then read, So Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand, the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. No, because he walked away, disrespected God. Imagine going up to somebody and saying hello and walking away before they can even respond. Just disrespecting mean, some manners. And this is um, the great difference between the two men. And as we look at this, we say, well, who am I in this picture? Am I, close, am I, am I more uh, drawn to Saul or am I more drawn to David? There are a lot of people drawn to Saul. Who needs to, who needs to pray? Who needs to wait for God? We know what we want to do. It says here in verse 8, without fail, recover all. That's what God says to David. The Bible we love so dearly is largely built on the lives of those who failed. It's just another one right here. David failed, but God says without fail. And so those who have blundered and failed and feel unjustly, unjustly treated by people, God has not given up on you. Um, you can lose your standing in life, such as Joseph and Job and uh, David and Paul, and still... You are remembered by God. Your faith remains. You remain faithful and trust God. And 
Scripture blows the trumpet for you. The Scripture says, you are right. This is where you, well done. You can, you know, there are some well dones now. You can get a well done, good and faithful servant in this life. You get a bunch of them. We get the grand ones. That's what we're after. <laughs> that, you know, the grand prize. But there are others in the meantime. God adds to this. David didn't ask this question, but God says, without fail, all of it. You're going to get it all back. Boy, i got to love that. And God is saying, I'm not exhausted. I can give it all back. Verse 9, so David went. He and 600 men who were with him and came to the brook Bezor, where those stayed who were left behind. Not all the 600 could make it. Uh, They got tired. Fainting happens in God's army. You get believers who just get worn out. Can't go anymore until they've rested. And they had been traveling continuously for three days. And then there's that whole episode of, you know, bawling, crying and weeping before the Lord. Um, again, many of them are likely traveling on foot and carrying equipment and supplies. Because later we're going to read about them giving food to somebody they catch wandering out in the wilderness. And, well, who's carrying that food? They have their gear with them. So this is going to be very painful to them because they're going to be left there. And that is going to be a great trial because these kind of men want to fight with their comrades and not be left behind too weak to carry on. So these brave men had to deal with that kind of guilt. Must have been revolting to them. Verse 10, but David pursued. So read verse 9 again. So David went, he and 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, verse 10, for 200 stayed behind, who were so weary they could not cross the brook Besor. David loses, he loses a third of his fighting force. The Amalekite forces are significantly larger. 400 get away. David has 400 men. And he's a long day of of the slaughtering, takes a good part of the day. So here he loses a significant part of his force, again, from bad to worse. This is a major setback. But he's in the path of obedience, is he not? God told him, pursue them. You're going to take them. He's in the path of obedience. He gets this setback. And instead of saying, oh, I'm, do- you know, I'm doomed as doom can be. My goose is cooked. That's the best way to eat it. Uh, Gideon knew some of this. He knew about losing a substantial part of his force. Fact of life. We cannot all keep the same pace in pursuit of God's will. Some Christians are just, uh, you know, just not strong, as strong as other Christians. It's okay. You're still loved. And we need to be gentle with each other. And not to expect others look at, because there have been people, you know, I do it, you need to do it. That works in some places in life, uh, but not in the church and not in Christianity. Not like that. Verse 11 Then they found an Egyptian in the field. Now, how often does that happen? (laughs) Hey, Mom, look what I found. (laughs) An Egyptian in the field. Okay. 
zip it because it could get out of hand for me. Anyway, they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. And they let him drink water. Verse 12. (laughs) See? You get these pictures in your head because you just see him in the field with a hat. (laughs) Just the whole thing. Fanning himself. (laughs) Verse 12. There's got to be an antidote for this. Somebody should do so. My daughter should get up and I can yell at her. Hey, you sit down. You know better than that. And I'll snap out of it. Okay. Verse 12. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. So before they interrogate him, they restore his health. He's with nicer people now. It's been three days since they raided the camp. Verse 13, Then David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite, And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. Verse 14. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Kirathites in the territory which belongs to Judah. And on the southern area of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. Well, that's what David wanted to know. Incidentally, when David becomes king's king, these Kerithites, they're going to make a part of his personal uh, bodyguard. And we get that in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. Uh, verse 15. And David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to me by God. It's really in the Hebrew, by God's plural, Elohim. Uh, that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. So David is in the will of God. He has lost a third of his force, and he's come to a place where he doesn't know where to go now. He's just stuck. In which direction? And here, this he comes across this Egyptian. So God is providing guidance in the form of this abandoned Egyptian. Now, between verses 11 and 15, we have three types that are, I think, they're just right up there on the surface. We have David, a type of the Savior, coming to the aid of the sick castaway in pursuit of captives. You know, Jesus set the captives free. We have the Egyptian and uh, a type of God finding the Gentiles who are unwilling to return to their evil master. It's uh, the picture of salvation. And then you have the Amalekites, a type of careless sinners. When we find them, they're going to be dancing and having just a good old time oblivious to the dangers around them. And so the Amalekites are a type of the careless sinners yet to be destroyed in their wicked ways. Those types are just right there in verses 11 through 15. Again, the Hebrew word for God is Elohim, and uh, the Egyptian is not a follower of Yahweh. He's just showing deference to the gods and David's God. And so people were very religious in those days, and he wants David to make an oath, which people did by their gods. And um, 
and before he gives up any information. David is not trying to convert him at this point. Maybe later. Verse 16. And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. So this is a large force. They're all spread out. It, it makes it clear. It's not, you know, it's a little outfit. And again, here we can see the carelessness of sinners in the world who suppose they're fine without Jesus. They're safe, frolicking through life, um, and all life has to offer, and they, but they're not safe. None of the Amalekites had a th single thought for Yahweh, for truth. They accepted their gods, just passed down to them from generation to generation, no questions asked. Nothing like, well, how do we, why do we believe that? Was there any proof of that? Carelessly, carefree, together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. And that's what we're going to see happen here, verse 17. Then David attacked them from twilight until evening of the next day. Man, this is, this is brutal. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. <laughs> They abandoned their buddies. <clears throat> it says something about them as a fighting force, not caring for each other. Uh, this was also vengeance in David's attack. Uh, he is sending a message out. Not only does he want his people back, but don't attack me again. Uh, here's First Thessalonians' response to those who are carelessly carefree of Jesus Christ. The dangers that go with this serious judgment. Speaking of Christ returning to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> from the presence of the Lord. From the glory of his power. Yeah, New Testament theology is God is the wrath of God is serious business. And if you say, Oh, I can't believe God, well then now you're just making a God in your own image. You've decided the revelation is not good enough, speculation is better. So I'm gonna make up something about God. The problem is it doesn't serve anybody, it, it hurts everybody. You like Saul, who should have dealt with the Amalekites and did not, and the problem got even worse. The young Egyptian with David, when he came upon these, that Egyptian that was in the field, when he came upon these Amalekites, that Egyptian, he is with David. Once he belonged with the Amalekites, now he's with David. Had he not been separated from them, he would share their fate. He would die alongside of them. But he got separated. It's a picture of salvation. The unconverted. They're in the sights of, of judgment, and that's why we try to tell the truth and be firm about it. He says not at the bottom of verse 17, not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels. Um, verse 18, so David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. 
the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So the types announcing Christ uh, just all over this passage. Verse 19, and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from David, David recovered all. A little raspy voice. Could one of the pastors get me some shrimp cocktail? I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, verse 19 now. <laughs> and nothing of theirs was lacking. Either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken from them. David recovered all, as God said. God allows us to suffer loss from time to time. He can afterwards restore it to us again. Not always, but he certainly can. Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 9. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Of course, except the son of perdition that was on him, not on God. Verse 20. Then David took all the flocks and the herds they had driven before those I misread that. Then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. So he makes this recovery um, and it is David. He's going to share. Not only is he getting what they lost at Ziklag, he's picking up what the Amalekites took from other places too. So this is a, a bonus. Verse 21. And David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Besor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. This is great because we're going to find this. There's a group in an element here that's going to cause trouble. But David understands that not, not all saints are alike. Um, not are, all are as spiritually robust. We are all equally dear to Christ, but we're not all equally as strong in every single area as one another. Verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except for every man's wife and children that they may lead them away and depart. Now the historian purposely calls these men sons of Belial, uh, worthless men. It's a derogatory title. He's, he's exposing this kind of behavior. So we go back to man should not live by bread alone, but by every word of the proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, how do I behave when I'm in a situation where I think someone doesn't deserve, but they're good people. But it was a weakness. It wasn't that they were, you know, David, we're not going with you. We're just not into this. They, they, they wanted to go. And the Bible teaches us about this grace. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Galatians 6, chapter 1. Um, this, this is true to life. That there are lower class people amongst David's warriors and there are lower class Christians amongst us, or at least professed Christians. <clears throat> By the time Paul writes his letter, uh, Belial became another name for Satan. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians writes him, he says, what accord has Christ with Belial? 
What part has a believer with an unbeliever? He's talking about not being unequally yoked. But there are those self-righteous souls who find their way into a, a, a solid environment and they nest there and they cause problems. And this is what we're seeing. And when they're, they're not even that special. Um, likely the ones that are saying this are the ones that suggested stoning David too. Uh, Spurgeon, on a sermon in this chapter, says they were, they were, some of them, the best of men, some of them were the worst in this, resembling our congregations. Some of them were choice spirits whom David would have sought, but others were undesirable persons from whom he might gladly have been free. Well, that's a reality. We cannot, you have to face it and accept it and function within it. Verse 23, but David said, my brethren, you shall not do so with what Yahweh has given us, who preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. Now, we don't hear these guys back talk David. They just submit, and that's a good thing. But what draws me to this is David is gentle with these guys. The historian's not so gentle with them. They're sons of these worthless men. Uh, but David's reply to this type of people, he calls them my brethren. Um, this is, again, the lessons of Scripture for us to walk away. I'm going to behave this way. When I'm in a situation like this, I'm going to try to remember how David or one other character of Scripture handled it. Later, sometime after Saul's death, David looking at his life in Psalm 18, verse 35, he says this about God, Yahweh. Your gentleness has made me great. I mean, it is something that um, I'm working on, being more gentle. I kind of like the Marine Corps way. I kind of like shouting at stupid people. But it's not God's way, and it should be. Joke. <laughs> so I struggle with that just by nature. And... Um, but I like it when, when folks are gentle with me. I've noticed that. Hi, Rick. Great hairdo. <laughs> no one has said that to me in decades. Anyway, verse 24. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is, so goes... Uh, as, but as his part is, who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be, who stays by the supplies... They shall share alike. And so it was from that day forward. He made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. So that's the rule. I mean, the, those who watch the supplies, they share in as was everybody else. Milton writes this, you know, the great poet um, and writer. They also serve who only stand and wait. That had become quite popular in, in uh England and during the Second World War. Verse 26. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of Yahweh. So David in his generosity. Mark's Gospel 12, verse 35. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And there we see it. Verse 27. To those who were... In Bethel, those who were in Ramoth of the south, 
and those who are in Jatur. And then you can read verses 28 to 30, all you want later. Verse 31, those who are in Hebron, because these are in all the places, and all the places where David and his men were accustomed to rove. I like that. The old King James, I think it says haunt. Uh, just He's a leader and a patriot. He cares for the people. These people helped him. They, they, they had given resources to David. Even if David just took it from the land, uh, became a competitor for resources wherever David was. And so he pays back the landowners for their support. And, of course, it, it's just um, a remarkable time in David's life. Under all that pressure, he shines so brightly. Let's pray. Our Father... Thank you for the lessons. Uh, may we remind our brothers and sisters that the Bible is enough because you tell us that we are complete in Christ. Your divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life. And uh, we believe it. And if, if we struggle with it, may you help us out. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.